Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Cyber. Today's conversations with another incredible founder, Dan Benjamin from Dig Security, which is a Tel Aviv-based data and cloud security company. Now, throughout the conversation, we cover a lot of ground. Uh, we go from product strategy and how Dan thinks about building incredible solutions based on not only his experience with Dig, but formerly as the head of cloud security product strategy at Microsoft Azure. And also things like how they manage their team from sort of a decentralized and flat approach that really allows employees to take ownership in how they support their customers and support the broader operations of the business. So all in all, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm excited to hand it over to Dan Benjamin from Dig Security. Well, the party is off to a good start. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Super excited to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. Well, as a way to uh, to kick us off and, and maybe to set some context, can you uh, tell me a little bit about how you found your way into the world of information security and ultimately uh, have come to found DIG? Great question. It's a long one. Uh, so hi, I'm Dan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of DIG Security. We're also a cloud data security company. I started my actual tech career in the Israeli army at the 8200 unit, like most of the Israeli founders you've probably interviewed. Uh, and that's where I started all my career. My first four years of my career was in the Israeli army where we had to do stuff that we didn't know how to do and how do we protect or how do we access data that, that we shouldn't have access to, right? Uh, and after that, when I finished my army service in 2008, um, that was what was comfortable for me to do. Uh, I really liked it. I liked the uh, navigation of complex technical problems. And that's kind of how I navigated my career. It was 2008, no one was hiring. Um, I was even contemplating going to be a waiter. And then uh, I, uh, I met a lady called Iris and she said, let's just build a startup together. And I co-founded a company called IDM Logic, which did um, statistical role mining, identity provisioning, deprovisioning. That company got acquired by CA back in 2014. Uh, did another stint in startups um, in the retail market intelligence space with a company called Silverback. Um, 10 years in, profitable lifestyle business. Um, uh, really fun company. It started from kind of a pet project of understanding how do we hedge uh, product between different types of marketplaces around the world. Uh, a couple of years at Google and at Microsoft. And um, then I kind of encountered this beast that I like to call cloud data security. Uh, I thought that this is a really good problem to focus on. Matched with my two co-founders, Igdo, who was with me in the army, and Gad, who I met while I was working at Google, and decided to kind of kick off. So that's kind of my, my leeway, probably around 20 years in cybersecurity today. Uh, and I love it. I love this space. So what drew you to the problem of, of cloud data security? So I think it's kind of a mix. <clears throat> so first off, I've been working in the cloud since 2014. Um, and kind of all these different problems um, of first off, understanding what data do I own in the public clouds? How is that data being used? How do I protect that data from getting breached? 
how do I know that what I'm doing is not gonna put us in danger, right? And kind of that emphasis of how it's growing when companies are now running across multiple clouds, across multiple different types of data store technologies, thousands of instances, uh, is just getting intensified. Most of my customers at Microsoft kept repeating the same type of problem. And when I was leading the Caspi solution of Microsoft, which is the largest SaaS data security product in the market, uh, the next big jump was public cloud. Public cloud today is more than 50% of the world's data. And we just don't have good solutions. I think the problem worsened versus got improved. So then I said, okay, I think we can do this better. Um, and I left Microsoft to co-found Dig, where <clears throat> I think today the problem of cloud data security is probably the largest ones that we've kind of seen in the market, um, where data regulation is just booming, right? We're now seeing CCPA that now just became CRPA. We're seeing data regulations in India, Australia, Canada, South America, Israel now. GDPR kind of kicked it all off. And we just don't have any capacity of understanding what data do we own, how is that data being used, and definitely not how to protect it. Most organizations kind of fail on the first question. Uh, and that's kind of what we try to, to tackle at DIC, bring uh, visibility into our data across the different clouds, across the different types of data store technologies, bring the right controls in, uh, both for static data security posture, but also real-time data security posture. So kind of reinventing maybe DLP for public clouds. Got it. Okay. So I'd love to maybe dig into the transition from, you know, sort of a senior product role within a large company like Microsoft to jumping into founding Dig. So can you maybe take me back to, to day one when you were sitting with your other co-founders and what were some of you know the initial steps that you guys took to get the business off the ground? So that's a great question. Um, first off, Microsoft is a fantastic company. Also, Google Cloud is a fantastic company. Um, and I really enjoy it. And I think uh, seeing both sides of the picture is like, fantastic. Now, when we kind of left our jobs, this was our second, this was all our second company. So God sold this company to Minecast. He go to a French company called Toluna. Ours got acquired by CA. Um, so we kind of knew where we're going to head. We knew that we're going to fundraise super quickly. We knew that we're going to bring in our old teams. I think our first 15 employees used to work for us in one of our previous companies. Um, and we knew what was the problem set that we were focused on. We kind of had a big product thesis document. This is a very Microsoft thing, by the way. I wrote down like a, a 15 pager. And this is how you like present new product ideas at Microsoft. Uh, and we kind of built the product from that product thesis document. We talked about our go-to-market. We talked about what is our alpha version of the product itself. Where do we want to focus? Where we're not going to focus? How do we build a competitive edge against product X or product Y or product Z? So um, we just spent about a month on that document. Uh, and once we kind of aligned on the documents, and I think documents are really good uh, instruments to kind of navigate and have kind of difficult conversations around, um, we built an outline of the actual product, started developing, uh, and even deployed it in our first kind of early, early design partners, which used to work for us. Uh, 
which also used to work with us in our previous companies as well. So we even kind of took our history of design customers from our previous companies to this company as well. So I think as a second time founder, it just becomes a little bit easier uh, because you have the team, you have kind of the initial design customers that already trust you. Um, and we were able to kind of get funding early on, which kind of navigates the uncertainty of not having a job uh, and how do you hire kind of an initial team without salaries. Yeah. Forgive me for bouncing around a bit, but you, you mentioned the product thesis document that was uh, very Microsoft. <laughs> have you guys mm -hmm. continued to, uh, you know, have that type of philosophy as your like product development or product strategizing approach or, or how have you iterated how you guys think about, you know, product strategy from then? Um, so I think that kind of evolves throughout the company lifecycle, right? Initially it was just me. Then we brought in one product manager and now we have three. Now we have a chief product officer who's much better than I am uh, in managing kind of a, a larger scale product team. Uh, but when we kind of built it out, we used to do a quarterly product refresh. So what's the roadmap for the next 12 years? We always outline where do we think that we need to be in 12 months? And then we kind of uh, derive back um, how do we kind of plan out each one of the different quarters? Um, we constantly kind of measure what do we hear in con both in customer conversation, but also in prospect conversations. And we kind of plan it out. We even kind of have hit rates on each type of kind of term where we need to be. And we also kind of did something that I think is, uh, new, but I'm going to take it for any type of new project that we'll do in the future. Every time we plans, uh, a new product capability, we had something that, that we called kind of screenshots from other products. And it's not kind of from, from the uh, copy approach. It's let's dissect different types of products, whether they're in security or not. Let's see how they solve this specific type of problem. Let's understand what we like and what we don't. And then let's kind of build our own thesis around that. So let's say, for example, a security product needs to build an inventory. We took... 25 different types of inventory pages from 25 different types of, of like different products. Some of them were security, some of them weren't. Then we kind of built our baseline of what do we like, what do we don't like. And then when, when, when we had kind of a clear idea of what we liked and kind of places that we will never go to, it was very easy for us to build that inventory page or our alerts page or our policy page. So that influenced us a lot. And I constantly recommend that to different other CEOs or other founders that, that kind of build their company, build out your assets, because when you design a new feature, we're not inventing the wheel. So let's understand what are our guiding principles, both on design, product capabilities, features. Um, and that will allow you to iterate much faster because otherwise you're going to iterate 10 times before you understand, oh, I don't like this, or I don't think this brings enough value, or I don't think my customers will like it. So, um, once you agree on kind of what you like and what you don't, it just becomes easy. Yeah. That's a, uh, <clears throat> it's a good segue into, uh, another couple of questions I wanted to ask. And these were, uh, suggestions from Jake at Felicis, who I know is you know, how we got connected and introduced us. Mm -hmm. Um, I talked to him before the show and he said, uh, a few things I needed to ask you about one and, and related to what you were just saying about product is. How, how did you guys decide on 
the ideal customer profile to start with? That's a great question. <clears throat> so initially we didn't, we didn't know. Uh, we knew that we wanted to sell to a large enterprise because P&G for cybersecurity is super hard. Uh, and we knew that uh, the sales cycle for SMB is very similar to the sales cycle of large enterprise, even though the large enterprise ticket size is 100x, right? So uh, there's a skew today in the market that SMBs don't get cybersecurity products. And it's just because the cycle is too long uh, for the effort that you need to put into onboarding SMB. So we knew initially that we're gonna take larger scale organizations, but then whether it is <clears throat> a thousand employee company, a 5,000 employee company or a hundred thousand employee company, we had to iterate. Um, <clears throat> and we just had hundreds of conversations. Every single person that we were able to get to, we had a conversation. We didn't mind getting no's. Um, and initially when we had uh, our initial conversations, it was end of 2021. Um, most companies back then said data security is not top of mind for us. Um, not top three uh, security problem. Uh, and that shifted kind of very, very aggressively. Uh, multiple companies were kind of born in the specific space in the last, in the last two years. And today, if you talk to a CISO, most CISOs today will say cloud data security or data security is top three problem for us. So that kind of shows how markets change and you need to kind of be perseverant to your thesis and your ideas and where do you believe the market will go to? We knew that the market is going to move here. Um, and uh, that's kind of how we iterated. Then we just found our sweet spot. So initially we knew that we don't know how to handle a massive customer environment. How do we onboard a customer with, let's say, uh, 300,000 data stores, which were just too small. Uh, also kind of the very, very large customers ask you for $20 million of cyber insurance. Small startups don't have that, right? Yeah. Um, so that kind of changes. So we onboarded companies with 1,000 employees, 2,000 employees, 5,000 employees, and that just kind of grew. Today, we, our sweet spot is around 20,000, 30,000 employees. Um, but it's, again, it just varies. Uh, so we onboard still smaller still smaller stage companies uh, of a thousand employees, but also the extremely large ones of 300,000 employees. Yeah. So it's mostly based on opportunities. What can you support as a company? Uh, and then kind of how do you grow from there? You, you said data security, um, you know, if you talk to CISOs is, is pretty consistently a top three problem. Mm -hmm. This is probably going to sound like a naive question, but Mm -hmm. What makes data security such consistently, uh, you know, a top problem for most CISOs? So first off, um, <clears throat> there's multiple factors that, that kind of pushed us there. First off, of course, compliance. Compliance is always the first thing that, that you as an organization need to tackle. Why? Because you can get fines. And we see a lot of these fines now um, ramping up. Second, we're seeing... Uh, more and more data breaches. And CISOs are putting, uh, are being put to blame because of that. Now, I don't think that that's what should happen in the industry, but I think that's our reality. We now saw that with the Uber, uh, with the Uber trial as well. Uh, so uh, CISOs are coming into the boards. Uh, the board is asking the, the like difficult questions. Can we protect our data? How, um, how risky is our data today? Are we compliant? 
do we know, do we have the proper controls to actually protect our data if someone tries to like steal data today? And most CISOs today can't properly answer that question. Uh, we just don't have the right controls. And also CISOs are enablers. They're not, they shouldn't prevent any line of business from happening. So let's say now the organization would say, oh, great. So we're working on AWS today, but we have decided to now onboard Azure and GCP as well. No CISO would say that that's a good idea. They want to protect a single cloud, not three clouds. But they need to enable the business. And if they need to enable the business, they now need to understand, okay, how do I handle multi-cloud data security? How do I have um, consistent data security controls? How do I make sure that we're not in the news, right? Uh, how do I make sure that I don't have data breaches? Especially when I have less controls than I used to have because I might've focused all my efforts to properly configure AWS, but now I have AWS, Azure, GCP, Alibaba, uh, and it just becomes harder and harder. So uh, I think compliance regulations, the news, uh, good marketing from companies like us, but many of my great competitors, um, and also kind of the education and success stories of what's happening with customers like ours, right? So I think that once a customer like ours says, oh my God, I just implemented this super cool new technology and it helps us a lot. And then another customer of a different competitor of mine says kind of the same thing. I think that kind of creates a rolling effect in the market. And um, one of my friends um, constantly says that the best cybersecurity markets is markets that have eight to 10 competitors uh, because that kind of creates good market evangelism. And we're lucky to be in a space like this, um, that there's a lot of attention, um, a lot of good competitors, uh, and kind of it's a game of standing ahead of the pack uh, versus kind of trying to educate the market and why is what you are doing so important or not. Just to dig into that a little bit more, this was one of the questions and topics that uh, Jake suggested as well was, you know, like you said, this space in terms of data security really has blown up over the last couple of years and, and there's a handful of players in it. So how do you think about competition? I know it's a very broad question, but, you know, internally, externally, what's sort of your, your, your mindset or your approach to it? So first off, I think that competition is good. I think uh, it pushes us as vendors forward. I think we all kind of um, allocate marketing dollars to kind of educate a market together. Um, and I think customers will get a better product for it. Um, we're now starting kind of to see head to heads in my industry. And I think it makes us a better vendor. I think the customers will get a better product, more suited for their needs. Um, and I think it's kind of a fun thing. We have competitors, oh, look at what they just did. Um, how do we kind of counter that? Oh, let's build something now that, that no one else is doing, but all customers are asking for it. So it's kind of, um, an inertia game. Um, so first off customer competitors is a good thing. I think too many competitors creates noise. Um, so I do think that, that markets should consolidate, um, after a while. So I'm guessing that some of our competitors will either get acquired or die, um, or us, but hopefully not. Um, and then kind of, you want to push and understand what are the different kind of differentiation between the different vendors. And I think that's where kind of a lot of first time entrepreneurs forget that customers get confused very easily. If you don't have a clear differentiation or when a customer asks you, 
how are you different than X or Y? You need to have a very good answer. Because if you don't have a very good answer, then <clears throat> customers will just think that you either didn't do your homework. Um, and eventually, <clears throat> I think uh, Jacques from like USVP said it's uh, the best. Um, he said, you need to be number one in a category of one. So um, we kind of invented this space of data detection and response for public clouds. This is kind of the space that we thought that we need to um, win it. And we understood that static data security is not enough and we need to win um, also dynamic data risk or data detection and response as we call it. And none of the other vendors kind of talked about the specific space. But it resonated really well with our customers. Gartner started mentioning that. And then we started seeing kind of this evolution of different other vendors kind of saying, oh, we also do cloud data detection response. We do DDR as well. Um, but that was our differentiation for the first year and a half. Um, and it, it resonated really well with our customers. Um, everyone knows DIG today. Oh, DIG is a DDR solution. And I think that allowed us to kind of stand out from the pack. Um, it allowed also investors to understand why should we invest in DIG versus X, Y, or Z. Uh, so I think having a clear differentiation between kind of a sea of competitors that look exactly the same and sound exactly the same is super important. Uh, just make sure that the, the, it, that customers also care about your differentiation and it's not just like a vanity thing. Yeah. That leads me to another question about uh, mm -hmm. what you were looking for from investors as you were getting mm -hmm. the business off the ground. So what were the, the sorts of you know, value adds that you were looking for when you were uh, you know, fundraising for uh, in the early stages of the business? So first off, personal relationship. I think um, it's like a marriage. Um, you don't really replace your investors. So you need to understand that, that you like the person on the other side and you can call them and tell them both good news and bad news as well. And I feel very confident with my existing investors today that I can do that exactly. That, that I can do that exact thing. I can call them and say, I have such an amazing news to like share, or I have really bad news to share, and let's kind of think together how do we solve this type of problem. Second, we have a good mix of a vertical fund, strategic investors, but also non-vertical funds as well. So vertical fund is cyber-focused funds, only do cyber, can kind of help you with go-to-market, introduce you to kind of multiple prospects, and that's the mix. Then we brought in two non-vertical funds, Signifier and Felices. Great funds as well, kind of more on go-to-market, more on hiring, more on kind of scaling out the actual product itself. Uh, and then we have kind of four main strategic investors, right? So we have CrowdStrike, Okta, CyberArk, and Berlin. And each kind of with its own differentiation and its own kind of opportunities for great product collaborations. Uh, and I think that's a really healthy mix. I haven't seen kind of a lot of cybersecurity companies that kind of build that mix around them. But for us, it's been super influential. So we can build really cool things with both CrowdStrike and Okta and CyberArk because we have kind of deep product integrations that we're able to build that no one else can. Yeah. And on the other side of it, we have the vertical fund that helps us with like go to markets. Next week, I'm flying to the teammate CISO summit, 150 CISOs coming into New York, great prospects, and also great relationship building. Jake's 
Jake helps me a lot with <clears throat> hiring, Signify helps us a lot with hiring um, and kind of go to market. So I think if you are able to kind of build out a proper board and kind of surrounding team that helps you as a company to thrive, I think that's kind of the key things. And uh, we're lucky. I mean, we're lucky that we have such great investors. I think that's uh, uh, one of the reasons that we were able to grow so quickly. Were there specific pieces of that that you were <clears throat> that you had identified and that you were looking for when you were going through the early fundraising periods? Like, for example, I'm just making something up here. Did you and your co-founders say, "All right, we're, you know, we're going to need some support from a go-to-market standpoint"? So let's go find an investor or a group of investors who are, uh, you know, have that as a strength of theirs. Was mm -hmm. there anything like that? So I think uh, Israel has uh, something unique in the market. Uh, which we have kind of probably the best vertical funds in cybersecurity in the world. Um, and I think Israel has a couple of those. We have kind of the top four, right? Teammate, Wild Ventures, Cyberstarts, uh, and maybe Glilot as well. So um, I believe that if you build a cybersecurity business today in Israel, it would be really um, wrong not to go with one of these funds. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much value out there. Um, they're competitive in terms of kind of the um, term sheets that they're able to give versus kind of any other non-vertical fund. And they only work in kind of the seed model. So they don't do A's, they don't do B rounds, they don't do C rounds. So <clears throat> the only kind of opportunity early on to bring in a vertical fund is in the seed round. Um, and I think kind of looking at the most popular cybersecurity companies today in Israel, I would say what, 75% of them probably started from a vertical fund. Um, and I think that carries a lot of weight. I see friends of mine that haven't raised money from like vertical funds and they just need to work harder. I'm not saying that it's impossible. Um, I'm just saying that uh, in the beginning, if you work with a good vertical fund, about 30 or 40% of your leads comes from your fund. Uh, I don't think that a lot of other founders that didn't raise from a vertical fund can say something like that. So yeah. it's just that little extra help that, that matters a lot in the beginning. Because as you grow, you already have kind of a marketing team, you already have an SDR team, you have kind of multi-channel campaigns. Um, and then another intro from um, a VC doesn't really matter, right? It's a nice bonus, but it doesn't really matter. When you're just getting started, and you don't have any reputation in the market. Let's, let's just take a look at MySpace. I say to customers, I will protect your data. Just give me access to your data. As an early stage company, it's just harder, right? You need to build that trust. You need to build that relationship. You need to make sure that companies will trust you to do that type of thing. Um, and I think having kind of a trusted advisor, which is the fund, um, helping navigate and build that, that, that relationship, I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, I'd love to maybe zoom out a little bit and think a little bit more broadly and ask a couple of broader questions about maybe how your prior experiences shaped how you started DIG and how you run it today. So one question I'm, I'm curious to understand is that, you know, sort of in, in one respect, right, everyone has failures throughout really any course, uh, throughout the entire course of, of their career. Um, you know, obviously these things continue someone to grow, they challenge you, et cetera. So with that context, what are some 
maybe lessons that you've learned over the course of your entrepreneurial experiences or just career in general um, that were painful, but mm-hmm. lessons that you've glad you're glad that you've learned nonetheless. Oof, I have many. <clears throat> um, I would start in the army. I mean, um, when I started my army service, I was definitely not the smartest one in the room. Uh, probably the the dumbest one in the room. Uh, I had so many talented people around me. And I think um, coming in from an area, let's say high school, that I was probably the, um, it was very easy for me to to be successful. And then going to the army where you need to work really, really, really hard to be successful, to kind of shine, to um, excel at what you do. I think that was kind of a big lesson for me. It took me at least a year and a half of working from 7 a.m. until 9 or 10 p.m. every single day um, just to kind of catch up to the brilliant people that were around me. That's number one. Number two, I started my first business back in the 2008 crisis. No one wanted to spend money. We didn't really understand what we wanted to do. We weren't prepared at all, Um, but we were persistent um, and we had a lot of failures. both with customers, both with traction. And it took us a, a while to build kind of a 30-people team, a 40-people team, right? I think uh, when IDM Logic got acquired, we were, what, about 50 people, and it was year six. Um, dig, kind of lessons learned from that. I mean, <clears throat> at Dig, we reached almost 50 people after a year. So that's kind of a different type of uh, organization that we already knew how to grow this type of company. And what are the mistakes that we should avoid? We're still doing a lot of mistakes. I'll say that in advance. But I think uh, we're avoiding many of the mistakes that we did in our first businesses. Um, and third, I think, I think that um, at least uh, at Silverback, when we started our initial business, it started from a pet project. Uh, and then we tried to like monetize that. And then we understood that we're not providing enough value and we were persistent, but that didn't work. Right. So, um, sometimes you need to let go of your stubbornness, uh, and properly listen to what your customers are saying. Um, I think sometimes stubbornness is good, but, uh, but you need to properly listen, uh, and kind of hear the judgment of others. Uh, and kind of make sure that that you're not kind of going uh, heads on into a brick wall. Um, And I think that's just what comes with experience and with um, difficult situations that that I handled in the past. Uh, Both me and also God and Ido and my my great investors that also give us kind of a lot of great tips. I mean, one of my board members is Neil Pollack. He built Exabune. I mean, um, $3 billion company, fantastic mentor to me. And I think that um, he kind of helps me also navigate between difficult conversations. And he also shares a lot of his failures. Uh, So talking openly about failures, which in my early, early career, I didn't do. Today, I only talk about my failures. (laughs) I only talk about what doesn't work. I think that is kind of a shift in mindsets that when you grow, you kind of change a little bit. So with that, what, what are some things maybe that uh, you would do differently if you would, uh, if you were to restart dig today? Uh, 
Dig is very young, yeah. first off. So uh, I think this is uh, an early question. But um, I think um, that we needed to onboard marketing much faster than we did. Um, I think that uh, one of my investors kept pushing me, hire marketing early, hire them before you need them. You don't understand how much work there is. And I didn't agree with him. And he was completely right. Um, marketing is, uh, is a lot. And I think that as you start marketing early, I think that's super important. Um, catching up on marketing takes a really long time and makes you work much harder versus kind of winning in marketing first and then kind of building up the product later. So I think uh, in cybersecurity, especially, um, marketing first, then product later. Um, because the market is endless. You have a lot of opportunities there. Uh, worst case, you'll lose it. You'll lose a couple of opportunities as long as you're transparent with the customer. You'll say, um, yeah, we're early. Don't lie to your customers. That's stupid. But uh, start marketing earlier. I think that's uh, one key thing. I think um, um, navigating um, a lot of kind of the difficult questions of, okay, what happens now when we have five or six competitors? How do we kind of differentiate early? Uh, how do we keep our differentiation competitive moving forward in the product? I think that's important as well. Um, <clears throat> and I think um, kicking off our American team uh, earlier would have been better for us. Um, I think... Um, it takes time to transition to a global company. And we started that a little bit later in the process where, from what I should have. But I think all of those uh, issues that I'm mentioning now today, um, it's just growing pains of a company that, that grows much faster than, the, than like what they expected. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, according to our original plan, we were aiming to be 30 people after a year. We got to 50. So I think it's kind of changes a little bit of the plans. We were able to do rounds um, quicker than what we expected. So again, that kind of changed a lot of our plans. And the market grew much faster than what we expected. Probably data security, posture management, cloud data security, data detection response is probably the most explosive market today in cybersecurity. Um, and that kind of pushes and changes a lot of your plans as well. So. Um, in hindsight, it's very easy to answer those questions, but I think DIG was properly planned uh, this time around. Uh, and it's mostly because we already did this in the past. And kind of you have the failures of God, the failures of mine, failures of Ido that, that kind of mesh together to not uh, uh, have so many mistakes in this one. Sure. So on the subject of uh, you know, the rapid growth and expansion within DIG, um, I know when we connected earlier and we're just brainstorming some topics, one thing that you suggested we talk about were, um, as you guys have grown, how do you just like sort of how you think about uh, really trusting employees to execute as you hand off responsibilities? Mm -hmm. um, I know, you know, from a leadership standpoint and just CEO standpoint, some entrepreneurs struggle with that, right? It's, it's, it's a natural byproduct of, a company growing up, if you will, uh, but people mm -hmm. struggle with it nonetheless. So how do you think about that of, you know, relying on the team, handing off responsibility to uh, employees? 
I think it's all about a balance of uh, coaching versus responsibility. So you want to be able to coach your team to take ownership of what, of what you want them to kind of lead moving forward, right? As you do this earlier in the process, you'll be better. Um, the company will become better. Um, but you need to make sure that you're able to kind of track uh, and help them kind of navigate the difficult decisions that, that you would have taken if you were in their shoes. Uh, otherwise, you won't be able to grow. Um, no one can manage 50 people uh, uh, or micromanagement. And then, I mean, no one wants that. Both the employees don't want that, but also you don't want that. Um, so if you give them as much ownership as you can, um, they will want to innovate. They will want to prove themselves. They want to uh, make sure that they're the best at what they do. Um, and I think that's kind of a key component in the company's growth. Um, we were able to bring in fantastic leaders within DIG. Um, we were able to promote from within, which I really love. We didn't hire external managers. We promoted from within. All of our engineers, for example, started as senior engineers at DIG. And then we were able to like promote from within. Uh, and we have 16 leaders today uh, that all kind of grew from within the company. Uh, product managers kind of accelerating growth. We were able to kind of see teams kind of forming up and it's all because of the initiative that people uh, took because the company allowed them to take it and the company encouraged them to take it. Uh, and today I think um, most innovation comes from our employees and not us. And I think that's, that's how it should be. They're closer to the field. They're closer to what kind of uh, customers are talking about. Um, and they own their space. We kind of give strategic advice and strategic coaching. Uh, but I think what we did really well at DIG was kind of giving uh, proper ownership to our team and not holding holding to the leashes uh, uh, too hard early on. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'd love to pivot a bit into maybe the last like section before we jump mm -hmm. into the quick fire round. Um, I'm curious to understand how you think about the operating environment today, especially mm -hmm. with you know, sort of the multiple arcs of your entrepreneurial journey from, you know, starting a business in 2008, uh, you know, starting Dig in the last couple of years, which is obviously a very different environment than here we are today at the beginning of 2023. So um, maybe to wrap all that context into a question, as, you know, the CEO and, and co-founder of a, a rapidly growing cyber startup, What's different about how you run the business today versus you know, how you would run it if it was, let's just say, summer of 2021? I think summer 2021 was kind of growth at all costs. Uh, you just wanted to bring in uh, the right people to the company. Um, cost of acquisition, no one really cared about. No one talked about cost of acquisition. Uh, we just wanted to grow. Everyone wanted to kind of uh, ramp up. Um, today we need to build sustainable businesses. I think money's not cheap anymore. Um, and I need, and we need to properly understand how do we, uh, position our company for success for the long term. Um, and I think, uh, as the company grows, the metrics that, that the company needs to show, uh, of why it's successful are getting more difficult, especially in kind of the turmoil of today. Luckily for us, we don't need to raise, uh, the next couple of years. Um, and I think that's today 
you have to think about cost of acquisition. You have to think about how you're spending your money, um, which was completely, was just a different story of 2021. I mean, companies would have raised their A round without any revenue, right? Company would have raised their B round with $100,000 in ARR. It, it was just a little bit nuts. Um, companies would have onboarded a, a thousand premium customers and they would say, oh, we have a thousand customers, but none of them are paying. Right, so it was just a different time in the market. Um, I think today is just you need to be more, more self-aware. Uh, even though specifically in our space, cybersecurity is less affected by the crisis, in my opinion. At least we're not seeing freezing of budgets. We are seeing our projects kind of moving along, um, especially with kind of compliance, data regulations, that kind of raining in on us. So we have to kind of put in uh, the budget there, but. If you are not, let's say, top five problem for a CISO, you're not, there's no chance you're going to get a budget, not specifically this year. Organizations, what we are seeing now shifting, they're trying to get more from their existing vendors versus getting um, a new vendor that is going to solve a very, very specific problem to them. So unless you're kind of top three, top four problem, I don't see you getting into a new prospect today. And I think uh, companies that, that, that started uh, back in kind of 2021, when it was easier to get capital, and now we're kind of discovering that their top six, top seven, top eight problem are struggling today. How do you go about either, you know, positioning yourself, right, as you're going through early, like, sales cycles and customer engagements, positioning yourself to be a top priority, or otherwise seeing where you fall from a priority standpoint? What's that, that mm -hmm. conversation like with your customers? So that's a great question. And I don't think that there's a proper methodology here uh, because when we started, we weren't top priority. Uh, I think it was the market understanding of where the market is moving to that kind of gave us faith, right? We were sometimes top six priority, top seven priority, right? That's not a good place to be in. Um, but we knew where the market was going. Uh, I think that's kind of the maturity of the founders that, that were able to kind of analyze the market and understand where the market was heading. Uh, and I think what gave us a big push in, in our specific space was, again, a lot of competitors, a lot of good companies in the specific space that, that, that also evangelized the, the like market with us. We like our competitors. I think it's a good thing to have competitors. Um, and I think it makes our life easier versus hard. Um, so um, proper customer validation. Again, we had 150 CISO calls before we started Dake. Um, do as many of those as you can. It's invaluable later on. You won't have the time and you will, and you can make mistakes later on. So definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, Dan, let's go ahead and pivot into the quick fire round. Um, the basic mm -hmm. premise of this is I ask a few quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Let's do it. Cool. All right. What's your favorite book? Me talk pretty one day. Um, it's just a bunch of um, great stories. It's by David Sedaris, I think it's called. I just remember that I loved it as a book. I read it multiple times. Um, and I grew up as a kid. Um, it wasn't that easy for me. Um, so taking that book, reading about kind of the turmoils of someone else, um, someone with a lisp. So I really like that book. 
favorite set of us yeah. is great. Love it. Cool. If you could change uh, one thing about the cybersecurity industry, what would it be? Overpromising and underdelivering. Um, I think that a lot of vendors today in the space are making us vendors look bad because they overpromise and underdeliver. And then a lot of CISOs today just won't take a call. They won't take a call because they know that 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 you're going to sell some some something that doesn't really work. Um, you're going to overpromise. You're going to underdeliver. <clears throat> Even Gartner said to me on, on a conversation that we had a couple of days ago, and he said, "The problem in your space today is that uh, all of you guys sell kind of mockups, right? You sell mockups, then the customer installs it, and then." nothing really works and then no one really knows how to trust it. And then they need to kind of have proper testing to even say if what you say is actually true. I don't like that piece of the industry. Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. People sell customers a problem and then they have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, what's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? Be pointy versus rounds. Um, hmm. So, a lot of us want to kind of improve all the different aspects that uh, we don't do well, right? Let's say, for example, you don't do uh, X or Y well. You say, I want to be super round. I want to be good at kind of a lot of different types of topics. I actually think that being pointy is better than being round because just be, just be really, really good at one thing or two main things. Focus on those because you will be better at everyone else uh, in that specific thing. And people want the pointy, not the round. I don't want generalists. I want point yeah. people and kind of each one of the, the different sections in our business. So what are, what are your specialties? What are you really pointy at? <clears throat> I think um, I'm able to tell a story um, quite well, build that, that position of that story really well, make sure that that story is coherent and that, that people can follow that story. And I think that building a business is very much in building a story and a narrative of what would align with the customer needs, align with our vision, and kind of align the company behind a shared vision. So I think that's something that I'm pretty good at. I think uh, I have good technical acumen. I have excellent co-founders that are much better than me in technology. But I think that helps me a lot being um, a technical founder. Technical founder, because especially when I sell... Um, very technical products and I sell it to very technical CISOs, having the ability to follow through in a conversation without having the need to kind of rely on mm -hmm. another technical person. I think that allow, that helps me a lot in what I do. I'm very bad at many other things, but uh, I think those are my two pointy things. Yeah. Those are two important ones. <laughs> exactly. Cool. And then the last question, uh, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him? Oof, that's a difficult one. I think that building out um, my career, early on, I just experienced a lot of failures, a lot of failures. And I remember at specific points of time, I had panic attacks and I started having stuttering and I had like everything that kind of stress comes to you. But eventually things aligned. If you kind of follow your path, you believe in yourself, um, understand that what you're doing will help you grow. Um, I think you're able to kind of um, build out the vision um, of your kind of future path and understanding that everything is, is exact. 
it's not kind of a straight line, it's a zigzag or even kind of a roller coaster, but I like the zigzag better. Uh, it just means that the path is still the same path, but the manner of how you get there is going to be super different than, than how you thought that, that, that you're actually going to get there. Yeah. Um, and just explaining to my former self back then um, this specific ideas and kind of showing them what we were able to achieve in the past 15, 20 years, um, I think uh, that would be fun. Love it. Well, Dan, I've, I've really enjoyed this, man. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Joe, thank you so much for the time. I really, really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Uh, and great meeting you as well.